Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. May our hearts be opened as you reveal once again Christ to each of us, living and active in our souls, in our bodies, in our minds, in every part of our being, as we worship you now. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned last week, we live in a world. Now, we live in a world of trouble. We live in a world in which, as we all know, the economy is in a nosedive and War is so prevalent and terrorism seems to be everywhere we go. And we struggle to figure out how to live in the midst of that and how to respond to it and how to be a witness despite all of that. As I mentioned last week, one of the, one of the reasons that we struggle so much to figure out how to respond and how to live and, and we struggle so much with with being the people of God that he, in this world that we are intended to be. One of the reasons we struggle so much is because too often we have such a small view of God. The image of God that we have created has, has put him into a box of our own making. Often that, that box is created by our theological perspective or, or by our own experiences. And often simply because of our finite minds. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we have a tendency to say, if I can't explain it, if I haven't experienced it, then God must not be doing it. And then we wonder why we struggle so much to, to be the people of God in this tumultuous world. Into this mindset of a small God comes Advent. Advent is an opportunity to give us perspective as we focus again on Christ's first coming and remember and contemplate his second coming. In a world that gives less and less attention to the the true meaning of Christmas, Advent gives us an opportunity to refocus and to remember what all this is about. Advent calls us to a restored vision of seeing Christmas in the context of the Christ child. And we need Advent, as the church fathers so widely recognize, because if we're going to regain a Christ-centered perspective of Christmas, no one is going to help us except for the church. And so we need Advent. Advent gives us the opportunity to reflect and to ponder the Christmas event at a time when reflection and pondering are at a premium and are often pushed aside by busyness and noise and stuff. And when we take the time to reflect on Christ, we see so much more clearly the bigness of God. 
the bigness of God, of, of who he is and his activity and his work in this world. Have you ever noticed that some children's songs seem timeless? I suspect that there are songs that you learned as a child and you have taught them to your children if you have them and probably were taught to your parents by their parents. Some of the children's songs that, that our children sing now have been going on for generations. Songs like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, Three Blind Mice, Old MacDonald, Jack and Jill, Mary Had a Little Lamb, London Bridge, Rockabye Baby, which probably isn't a great song to sing to little babies since it talks about a crib breaking and falling and all of that, but we sing it to them anyway. And the, the same thing is true of songs that our children sing in the church. If you walk past one of the Sunday school rooms or Wednesday night ministry rooms or even the preschool sometimes during the week, you will hear songs that if you grew up in the church, you probably sang as a child. Even why Jesus loves me. If you're happy and you know it, Jesus loves the little children, the B-I-B-L-E, this little light of mine. There's a song that I've been hearing for a little while. It's, It's a little bit newer, but... You probably have either heard it if you haven't sung it. It says, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. What a great song for our children to sing. And we, if we haven't taught it to them yet, we ought to teach it to them. But it's a great song for us to sing too. Because whether we like to admit it or not, every one of us needs to be reminded that our God is big. That there is nothing our God cannot do. Now, I suspect that most of us would, would say, well, I believe that with our minds. But what about how we live? If, would, would people around us, if they watched us for a while live our lives, would they believe that we believe, just based on how we live, that our God is so big and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do? It's this largeness, this bigness of God's activity that is really put to the test when Luke tells us in the beginning of the second chapter of his gospel that, that it came to pass that Caesar Augustus issued a decree about a census and a taxation. This census has to be a, a great inconvenience to Joseph and Mary. It means that they're going to leave their family. It causes Mary to journey at an inopportune time. She is at least, at the very least, six months pregnant and probably more like eight or nine months pregnant. Got to be an uncomfortable ride for her, and even more, it's a potentially dangerous ride for the baby. Now, we know that the evil one is going to do everything possible to prevent this baby from being born. Look at all that the evil one does after Jesus is born. And you can't help but wonder if, if it's not Satan that puts into the mind of Caesar this census in order to put Mary's baby at risk. I mean, after all, how hard can it be to convince a powerful man how great it would feel to be reminded once again of exactly how many people he rules? It probably doesn't take a lot of nudging 
to, to get a, a, a great leader to say, you know what, I would really not mind knowing that there are this many exact number of people who bow and scrape, whose lives are in my hands simply at the words that I speak. And how hard can it be to convince an, an arrogant leader to find ways to finance his legacy of buildings and temples and to further indulge his lavish lifestyle? I mean, that's, what, that's the prerogative of kings. And to an unknowing bystander, to the important players who are in the middle of this story, it appears as if, as if everything is coming unglued as this pagan king wreaks havoc on the plans and the people of God. I can only imagine Mary and Joseph struggling to understand the events of this. I mean, after all that's happened that they've tried to wrap their minds around, now they've got to take a trip and go to Bethlehem? Maybe they misunderstood God. Maybe God isn't as powerful as they had hoped. The cartoon that I saw years ago that shows them Shows Joseph's thoughts as they travel to Bethlehem, or at least one person's opinion of that. And as he leads the donkey, saying to himself, God forsaken land occupied by foreign troops. And he mumbles on, pregnant wife, no place to stay. Everyone's talking about our forced marriage. Doctors, forget it. Clean bedding, ha. Boy, it stinks in here. And the last thing looks up to heaven and says to God, what's the matter? Don't you like us anymore? You know that feeling. Stuff happens in our lives, in the world, and we ask God, don't you like us anymore? Aren't we important to you anymore? How come this is happening? How come this isn't happening? What's going on? It must seem to Mary and Joseph that that Caesar Augustus is in control and that God has lost control. It seems that the real power of the world is in Rome, not in the heavens. And you notice, I mean, Caesar, it said, Luke says, Caesar's census reaches all the world because he rules all the world. Caesar Augustus literally rules the known world. He rules the rulers. He's the king of kings, as people see it. And not everyone wants to be ruled by Rome, but that's too bad. They don't have the power to do anything about it. His government built statues to venerate him. And by the end of his life, people are worshiping him. That's probably never happened to any of us. You walk in the office and people begin to bow and scrape to you and not worthy. Happens to Caesar every day. He's an army of over 500,000 soldiers. It takes a lot of money to finance an army like that. And an idea comes to him about how to pay them. And there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And we may think maybe it was the evil one. Luke says, maybe not. Caesar at this time is about 60 years old And there's probably no human being before or after that's held so much control over so much of the world so tightly for so long. He lifts a finger, says a word, and the whole world scrambles to obey. He is the sovereign over the world. He is in control. When he says jump, 
Everybody in the world asks how high. And this census is a penetrating symbol of his power and the power of Rome. And it's got to be particularly frustrating for the people of Israel to know that their lives are being controlled by a pagan king thousands of miles away. And I suspect there are times when we wonder about who's in charge of this world. We want to believe that God is, but watching things unfold, the powerful getting whatever they want time and time again, and the, and the rich manipulating the events of the world time and time again, and the influential taking advantage of, of the less connected in order to get their agenda time and time again. We wonder, who's in control here? When I read of, of huge corporations laying off workers while executives get pay raises or get these exorbitant severance packages, severance packages, he can't help but wonder what's going on in the world. When it's uncovered that the government officials are taking bribes and, and it undermines the, uh, our security or puts our soldiers at risk, you have to wonder what's going on here. When you come to realize that there are far too many places, even in this country, in which people of color are forbidden the same basic rights that most of us take for granted, you wonder who's really controlling the world. It's still a world in which the rich and the powerful and the famous and the influential are in control. And sometimes we wonder if God can do anything about it. It's just life. It's the way things operate. It's like the line in the song, Sweet Little Jesus Boy, that's the way things are done down here. That's the way it is. And we're tempted to believe with a small view of God that the real power is in the hands of those who make policy and create laws and wield influence in this world. And often it appears that's the case. They have power and might. And even though the incarnation, people have told us the incarnation reveals that their power is temporary and fragile and only a thought of God away from from extinction, our small perspective of God causes us to believe that they've got the power. And if we want to transform the world, we have to get the power from them. And so we believe if we just pass a law or get a court order, or sway public opinion, then we'll change the world. What a small view of God that is. Despite what we say we believe, we often act as though we believe that the powers of this world are the real powers of the world. That the political structures of this world are what change the world. That the people who are in control of things and of life and and, and of all that that operates the world, that makes things run, that, that allows things to happen, we believe with how we act that those people are in Washington or Moscow or Ottawa or London or Dubai or Beijing or on Wall Street or in Hollywood. Those are the people with the power. When they speak, people listen. And if we can just get that power, then we can change the world. And we are subtly declaring with that mindset that the kingdoms of this world 
are more powerful than the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There's a recent Christianity Today article that began with this description. The sober truth is that at this season in American life, when our non-evangelical neighbors hear the word evangelical, they think of politics before they think of the gospel. And that's why Advent is so important for us. Advent calls us, even as we are actively involved in working to change the world, it calls us that we have to, and reminds us that we have to engage the culture for Christ using the strategy of Christ. The world is not going to be changed because now we have the power instead of someone else. The world is going to be changed when we realize the strategy that God uses is still the right strategy. It's a little baby born, lying in a manger. Why would we want to use the weapons of this world when we know they've already lost? Instead, we use the weapons of God, compassion, and grace, and love, and mercy, and truth, and sacrifice, even death. And even as we, as we work and fight to transform the world, we engage the world the same way Christ does, by caring and listening and loving. But only people with a large view of God can stick out our necks and believe that strategy works. When it comes to politics and and moral issues, we may be called to fight, but we fight not as people who are afraid to lose, as though we are following this small, fragile God, but as followers of a large God whom we know is the victor through the Christ child born in Bethlehem. The incarnation tells us that God changes the world by sacrifice and love and mercy and compassion, by God becoming flesh, by dying, and so must we. The incarnation tells us that the world will be changed when we trust that God is sovereign enough even to use a pagan king to make an edict and to have an innocent, fragile helpless baby born into the world. Even as Luke highlights this census that's initiated by the most powerful earthly king, Luke says, watch what happens. You need to understand that this is all a part of God's plan, not Caesar's. Author Tom Wright puts it like this. This man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey, supposedly at the whim of a king. And notice the result. A child is born in a little town that, oh, just by the way, just happens to be the one mentioned in the ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. The ancient ancient prophecy says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary don't live in Bethlehem. They have no reason to go to Bethlehem. Except Caesar Augustus issued a decree. 
and everything is set in motion. Caesar thinks that his kingdom in Rome is what rules the world. Luke tells us, reminds us, that the world is ruled by this baby lying in a manger. Caesar would have told us that it's because of him all this happens. He makes a call. He's in control. Luke asks, which king is really at work here? Whose will is actually being done here? Who's really in charge here? Someone has said that you, know, you just compare the two kingdoms. And today, Caesar has only one palace left in the world. It's not in Rome. It's in Las Vegas. And the baby in the manger is enthroned in hearts and lives and houses of worship on every continent. Who's really in charge? I know at first glance it appears as though Joseph and Mary are just sort of pawns in, this, in, in the work of this powerful emperor. They don't want to go to Bethlehem, I'm sure. She's close to giving birth. They aren't fond of doing anything that the Romans want them to do. But Luke tells us that it's a work of God. And in our small perspective of God, we have a difficult time understanding things that are happening in our lives, in our world. Can we believe that God is at work even when we don't see it? When the powers of the world who oppose us and oppose him seem to have everything in their hands? When you live with a large view of God, you begin to realize that God is bigger than circumstances. And God is bigger and greater and stronger than any of the powers of this world. And he wants to show us that. And the closer we are in relationship with God, the more our hearts become one with the heart of God, more accepting of what God is doing in his sovereignty. And the most appropriate response to the sovereignty of God is faith. It's trusting, it's believing that whether we see or not, God is at work and God is in control. Can we come to the place where we accept what God brings to us and to our world because we believe that God knows what he's doing and all that he is doing is good. I was thinking about this passage, my mind went back a few weeks when we were discussing the children's game, Shoots and Ladders. And uh, you remember we talked that day that what would it be like if, if when you're playing this game, has all these hundred squares on it, that when you're playing this game, if the only square you could see was the square you were on, all the rest of the board was blind to you except the one square you were on. On that one square being all you could see, when you, when you walked over to spin the spinner, what do you want? You want a six. Everybody wants the highest number because it gets you to the end the fastest. But when you begin to see that God is at work beyond our little perspective, maybe it's not a six that you want. You know, that on this board, if you're on, if you're on square 50, 
and you spin a six, you're going to go to 56. That's going to take you backwards. What you really want is a one. Because a one puts you at the bottom of the ladder and takes you up to 67. We forget that our perspective can be so small. All we can see is what's right around us. When all the while God has bigger plans, grander plans, and we trust him. That he knows what he's doing, and what he's doing is good. So in whatever circumstances you find yourself, something in your life, something in our world, are you ready to trust that the one who cannot be hindered, even by the power of Caesar, cannot be hindered by the things in your life and in our world? Gracious Father, give us faith. Open our eyes to the bigness, the greatness of who you are. Move us away from our small perspectives of you. That we might live in the greatness of your sovereignty and your grace. Through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.